Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. This weekend, the contents of the 37-count felony indictment against former U.S. President Donald Trump was unveiled with stunning revelations regarding his alleged mishandling and concealment of classified documents. Reading the indictment, it doesn't take long to understand that many of the secret documents were related to Iran, and there is wide speculation that many of them may also relate directly to Israel or may have even come directly from Israeli intelligence information. How is Israel related to the case that may have major consequences for the 2024 U.S. presidential race? Haaretz diplomatic correspondent Amir Tibon is here. He'll discuss all of that with us. He'll also talk about how the cases against Trump and the cases against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have things in common and how they are very different. Amir will also give us an update on U.S.-Iran negotiations on a possible revived nuclear deal, the chances for diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and the overall rocky roller coaster ride we call the current U.S.-Israel relationship. All of that coming up. Amir Tibon, former host of Haaretz Weekly and now Haaretz's diplomatic correspondent. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Alison. It's so much fun to be here again in the studio, even though now I'm coming from the other side. Let's start with the Trump indictment itself. We've all read it. We've all seen it. It says that Trump kept documents on U.S. and foreign countries' defense and weapons capabilities, nuclear programs, U.S. vulnerabilities to potential military attacks, and plans for possible retaliation in response to foreign attacks. We're not quite sure on who to who. It also said that Trump shared classified information with others in the form of a plan of attack against another country that a military official had drawn up. All very sort of, you know, murky in terms of who's doing who to what. So in this part of the world, who do we think the players are? First of all, Alison, I have to say, I'm a bit sympathetic to the guy's claims. I mean, maybe he just likes to have a lot of books in the bathroom. <laughs> I kept a little library there of classified documents, and people are making a huge deal out of it. But yeah, I think the biggest question everybody's asking today in Israel is, are we part of this story? Are there documents in there, in those boxes that we saw in the, in the I don't know, it's a shower, it's, it's a bathroom at, at Mar-a-Lago. Are there boxes there containing Israeli secrets as well? And we don't know the answer to that. We do know, if we read between the lines of the indictment, that Trump shared details also about a specific military attack plan related to another country. And I think everybody suspects that this is about Iran. And the attack plan is potentially Israel's? It sounded to me more like an American plan, but it's not something we can rule out. And yeah, obviously, the United States government has a lot of information about Israel's defense capabilities, about the Israeli nuclear program that we probably don't want being out there. In I think there were also documents in the, in the ballroom, right? There were documents, I think, in one of the bedrooms. Basically, we don't want those things just moving around different rooms of Mar-a-Lago randomly and waiting for some janitor to open them. So You think in the Mossad, they're sitting there thinking, was our military secrets in the bedroom or in the bathroom? <laughs> you know, Alison, I want to remind you that early in Trump's presidency, there was an incredible story we have all forgotten by now because there have been so many other incredible stories in which he met with, I think it was the Russian foreign minister or ambassador, I, I don't recall now, um, and shared details about some Israeli, 
allegedly Israeli operation against ISIS. And it was a huge story for a day or two. This was in 2017. And then we all moved on to the next huge story. I think it was right before he fired um, uh, Jim Comey from the FBI. Um, so it wouldn't be the first time if this happened that information uh, related to Israeli activities got out the wrong way. But obviously, putting aside for a minute the national security and um, data security questions here, I also think it's not going to be good for Israel to be part of the legal and political cir- circus that is going to start around this entire indictment. So let's hope we're not in the documents. Although, as journalists for Aretz, I think we want to be there, right? I mean, it would be <laughs> such a great story. I mean, everybody is wondering why, even in the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, who is the Trump whisperer, we think she has a line directly into uh, Trump's brain, such as it is. She's asking why did he take these documents? Why did he hang on to them so much? Why was he showing them to people? Were they just trophies? Was this to further business deals? Some people are saying it has to do with Jared Kushner's business deals with the Saudis, although we've heard that Jared Kushner and Trump aren't in such good terms lately, so one wonders about that. Is it possible that he's showing evangelical supporters that uh, he's going to be Israel's savior somehow? I mean, do you have any any thoughts on why, if we are part of the story, what part we would be and why? Anything I would say would be a total guess. And obviously, my guesses on this are as good as yours. Um, and I think there, that's a question a lot of people are asking. Why did he do it? Including, I think, some of his supporters who don't really understand what this was about, especially when you remember that less than a decade ago, he ran a very effective campaign against Hillary Clinton, accusing her of negligence and mishandling of classified information. Lock her up was the battle cry in the rallies. I remember covering some of that in 2016, and it was chilling to hear that kind of cry um, at an American political event with one candidate basically calling to put in jail his opponent. Um, and now he's trying to flip the script and uh, say that he's the one who's being persecuted. Of course, circumstances are completely different. Um, but yeah, that's a really good question. What was he trying to do with all those documents? So speaking of persecuted uh, heads of state or former heads of state or former heads of state who are now once again heads of yeah, state. The, the plot thickens. <laughs> Israel is getting name checked a lot when it comes to looking at other Western democracies with popular and populist leaders who were indicted, who are on trial for crimes. So when you talk to U.S. friends and colleagues about our experiences with Netanyahu, what do you tell them they may have in store in the future with Trump running for president under indictment, possibly on trial? What a club to be a member of, huh? The club of countries with <laughs> indicted leaders seeking re-election. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, I think Israel can show the United States a bit of its future, at least in the next year and a half. Um, we saw that at least here in Israel, the indictment against Netanyahu did not hurt his hold on his right-wing religious base. You can make the argument that it weakened him politically as a leader. You can make the argument that it contributed to his temporary fall from power. Remember, we did have a year and a half without Netanyahu as prime minister just recently. Um, And I think it's not a coincidence that this this did come after his um, indictment and the beginning of his trial. And we have to remember Netanyahu also won an election half a year ago. That's true. But it was the fifth election Israel had in four years. And the four previous elections, he did not win. It either ended in a deadlock or he lost. So I think 
if you're an American watching anxiously and thinking, what is it going to be like to have um, a, a clash between a person running for president, who's also a former president, and the legal authorities, I don't think there's a lot of good news we can bring you from Israel. Uh, what we saw here is that this event, the Netanyahu indictment, really destabilized the political system, brought everything to a halt in a way. And even now, after Netanyahu has returned to power, um, one of the main motivations behind his government's attempt to weaken the judicial system and pass the judicial overhaul that's been stuck for two months now also had to do with his own trial. Um, and this really, this war between the prime minister and the judicial and uh, legal establishment has not been a good thing for Israel. So I think for the United States, there are a lot of potential lessons here. I will say one thing, though, about Trump. I have seen in some of the American um, media chatter in the last 48 hours, people saying this is not going to change anything because the vast majority of Trump supporters are going to stay with him. The way I see it, American elections these days are sometimes decided by such small margins in specific states that you don't need 95% of Trump Uh, voters to change their mind because of the indictment. You need two or three percent to change their mind. And that may be possible. We did see here in Israel that some people who were supporters of Netanyahu did leave the party and change their opinion uh, because of everything that's happened. Uh, it wasn't enough to uh, end Netanyahu's political career, but it still was significant and brought us to the current moment and stalemate in Israeli politics. Do you feel like the nature of the alleged crimes crossing the line from, you know, very typical corruption, as Netanyahu's um, uh, criminal charges are, into the realm of state secrets, classified documents. Do you think that will make any difference in the comparison contrast between Netanyahu and Trump in this case? That's a great question, Alison. And I want to remind the listeners, we did have one scandal here in Israel that involved people from Netanyahu's close orbit that had to do with national security issues, which was the submarine case, the uh, Uh, allegation that some people made a lot of money um, from problematic deal-making involving uh, Israel's submarine fleet and um, the German company ThyssenKorp and the sale of other submarines to Egypt. But in that case, no indictment was eventually brought against Netanyahu. And I think for some Netanyahu supporters, that did make a difference, that people said the corruption charges that eventually made it to court Are, have to do with um, smaller crimes in their view. I don't think the indictment against Netanyahu, is sm against Netanyahu is small at all. I think it's very significant, but not everybody agrees with me. Um, and I think if there was a national security component to it, it would have changed more people's minds. And it will be interesting to see how that will play out in the United States, especially because the Republican Party historically has presented itself as more hawkish on national security. Um, and again, we remember how they haunted Hillary Clinton because of her... E email server at the time, but we also saw Republicans changing their mind on so many issues since Trump has become the face of the party, um, and how a former war hero like John McCain, who was admired in his own party, uh, became an outcast because he dared to speak against uh, the leader of the party today. So we'll see what kind of impact that will have. Amir, much of your coverage recently has focused on U.S.-Iran negotiations towards the possible resurrection of some sort of nuclear deal with Iran. Where do we stand right now exactly? You've reported about fears of a loss of Israeli leverage among top officials. So first of all, again, everything uh, relates to one another. We're moving from a president uh, who, in the last weeks of his administration, um, there was fear 
in the senior ranks of the Pentagon that he would maybe order a strike against Iran um, and then took home uh, perhaps documents related to that. Uh, to a president now who wants to do anything he can to avoid that kind of scenario. And we've heard Joe Biden and we've heard senior people in his administration say that Iran will not have a nuclear weapon under his watch. And I think they mean it. Um, but they want to do anything they can to keep Iran away from the nuclear threshold without having to use military force. They are already involved and committed to To what's happening in Ukraine right now this is the main priority they're also keeping an eye on China and the possibility that things will escalate over there with Taiwan the last thing this administration needs is a third major uh, confrontational arena with Iran and so they will try to reach a deal with the Iranians and I think the fear in Israel is first of all that the administration will go a long way to basically get Iran to sign something or maybe not even sign but have some kind of like a non-paper more verbal agreement that would freeze in place the Iranian nuclear program nothing will be dismantled no progress will be reversed but the Iranians will just not break forward anymore and not bring the situation to a crisis in which either Israel or the United States has to act militarily and what I wrote last week is that Israel doesn't really have any influence on this process anymore Uh, if we look back almost a decade ago to the month before the signing of the 2013 interim agreement with Iran, which paved the way to the 2015 JCPOA, Iran deal, back then Israel did try some moves. And Netanyahu was prime minister as well. I uh, remember him, of course, um, going to Congress eventually to give that very controversial speech against Obama's Iran policy two weeks before an Israeli election. That happened in the same year. We remember him trying to recruit one of the European powers to perhaps oppose the American concessions within the negotiation room, France or Germany. None of that is on the table today. He cannot use Congress against uh, Biden's Iran policy because Congress is split between the uh, Democrats who control the Senate and the Republicans who control the House. And each party has a very, very small majority in each house. Um, and within the Democratic Party, uh, Netanyahu's standing is very different today than it was a decade ago. There were people 10 years ago who were willing to listen to Netanyahu on this issue, and several Democratic senators eventually even voted against the Iran nuclear deal. But if you look at those same senators, Chuck Schumer, who is the majority leader today, uh, Ben Cardin, veteran Jewish lawmaker, Robert Menendez, who heads the um, Foreign uh, Relations Committee, They all spoke out against Trump's decision in 2018 to withdraw from the nuclear deal, a decision that Netanyahu encouraged and pushed for. And they blame Netanyahu for the current mess. They understand that he has a lot of the responsibility. So even if he tries to get some action against Biden in Congress, I don't think a lot of people are going to pick up the phone this time. So he, it, he recently sent you reported uh, Ron Dermer and Sahia Negbi as emissaries there. So as far as you know, they came back with empty hands. They didn't really get any... I think they went there to be briefed and um, also to present the Israeli point of view and maybe share some intelligence. But the idea that they would impact the decision making in the White House, I think, is a bit extreme. And also in Europe. I mean, it's true that the Europeans are not big fans of Iran these days because of Iran's involvement in Ukraine. The drones that are killing Ukrainian citizens are coming from Iran. But the Europeans are also very committed to Western unity at this point in time. They don't want any public signs 
of uh, discord or disagreement with the Biden administration. And also they really don't want a war to break out between Israel or the US and Iran, because that would divert resources from Ukraine, which is the top priority and really the only priority for Europe these days. So Netanyahu doesn't have partners for any kind of pressure campaign against Biden. And I think whatever the administration will eventually decide to do, um, Israel will grudgingly have to accept. Stepping back for a minute about the overall state of U.S.-Israel relations at the moment. I mean, it's all, as you said, tied together, right? On one hand, there's the Iran issue. On the other, there's the policy collision between Joe Biden's White House and State Department and our far-right Netanyahu government when it comes to a two-state solution or lack thereof, or as you know, we've been reporting in Haaretz, you know, active movements towards some sort of annexation or integration of the West Bank uh, into Israel. And then finally, the cherry on top of it all is the judicial overhaul and the, you know, the fight for democracy within Israel. And it can't be lost on the administration when Israeli ministers are followed by protesters, even when they're uh, in the United States. How do all these factors affect one another when it when it comes to, you know, the great partnership, uh, the unbreakable bond between Israel and the United States? I think the Biden administration knows that there's not going to be any real progress toward the two-state solution with this government. And it's also not a top priority for the administration. We saw Biden during his visit in Israel last year, which was still with the previous government, you know, pay lip service to the idea and talk about it. But the administration is not putting any pressure on Israel on this issue. And theoretically, that should have created a good relationship because here you have a right-wing Israeli government with a democratic administration and the administration is not trying to put too much pressure to you know, negotiate and make concessions and take down settlements. They're not even speaking about a settlement freeze. But this government is so extreme that even with the friendly Biden administration, it just cannot avoid having a fight. Um, and we saw last week, I think, the, the dumbest example of all, which was Vice President Kamala Harris going to an Israeli Independence Day celebration a few weeks after the, the date. But, you know, it's, it's um, a reception that the Israeli embassy holds in Washington, D.C. And she gives this passionate pro-Israeli Zionist speech, during which she also spoke about the importance of having a strong democracy and separation of powers and independent judiciary. And, of course, the media interpreted it rightly. So it's a very, very soft, um, hinted kind of criticism at the judicial overhaul that the government has put on hold two months ago. And the next day, the foreign minister of Israel, Eli Cohen, blasts her on the radio and says that she hasn't even read the judicial legislation and doesn't know what she's talking about and could not name a single part of it that she really opposes. By the way, have they even translated that legislation into English? I'm sure there are some uh, committed uh, staff members at the American embassy in, uh, in Jerusalem uh, or the branch they have here in Tel Aviv who have done that. Um, and if not, they can read it in Haaretz. But I mean, why start a fight over something like this? She, she literally came to salute the state of Israel and offer the administration support. And even if you read her speech, the criticism was very mild. I mean, you could even argue it was not criticism. It was more like a, you know, a hint. At, and we know all of this. I mean, President Biden has spoken very strongly against this legislation. Um, you know, this, another example is what's happening with Chomish, this legal outpost in the northern West Bank that was rebuilt on lands that Israel evacuated in the disengagement in 2005, and the administration considers it 
uh, a breach of an Israeli commitment to the United States. This is the kind of thing that strategically doesn't bring a lot of value to Israel, but it creates um, a bad atmosphere in the relationship with the administration. And Netanyahu wants actually to have a good relationship with Biden at this point in time because he's dreaming of the big get in Saudi Arabia. Um, but it seems like his government, and he himself, by the way, is just making mistake after mistake. We didn't even mention the story that we had last week in Haaretz about Netanyahu's appointment of a new media advisor who had shared conspiracy theories about the 2020 U.S. election, called Biden unfit for office, and said that the president is destroying America. If you're trying to recruit the president right now to help you with this big Saudi Arabia dream, and if you want to get an invitation to the White House... And if you care about the negotiations with Iran. Yes, all of those things. Why would you do that? I was wondering, this Ellie Cohen remark, if it would bother Netanyahu at all, or if he would say, hey, if I'm not getting invitations to the White House, why should my foreign minister? And so he would be <laughs> fine with Ellie Cohen insulting Kamala Harris. I, I think Netanyahu probably told him this was not a very good idea. But again, how can he speak with authority on this when he's appointing that kind of advisor to his team? It's, it's a total joke. It's not consistent. So speaking of the big dream of uh, diplomatic relations, full diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel following in the other countries of the Abraham Accords, despite the fact that we've got all these issues, all these problems, these rumors that something's moving with Saudi Arabia just won't go away. And a few weeks ago, Barak Ravid uh, was promoting his new book. He came on the podcast. He is sure that even under Bibi and Ben Gvir's watch, you know, maybe somehow jettisoning uh, Ben Gvir beforehand or not, that this is a real thing that could really, really happen. Are you with Barack? I think it's real and I think it can happen, but the challenges that remain are significant. We have several issues, first of all, that have to do with the Saudi-U.S. relationship that have not been resolved. The Saudis... That's the key, right? This is really a story about Saudi Arabia and the United States, less about Israel. There is also an Israeli angle, I think, but it's true that the problems between... Washington and Riyadh have to be confronted, first of all. And so there's the nuclear issue. The Saudis want to have civilian nuclear program with full American backing and support. The White House, I think, has some reservations about that. And I think it's not that Washington is completely against any kind of nuclear activity in Saudi Arabia, but you know there are details that have to be hammered out so that the United States feels comfortable, and Israel as well, w- with this idea so that it does not later... Uh, become uh, a potentially military program. And there are Saudi demands for advanced American weapons that not everybody in Washington is very happy to give the Saudis right now because of everything that's happened in the last few years in Yemen and also because of concerns that have to do with Israel's QME, the qualitative military edge that we typically enjoy. And then there are the Israeli-Saudi issues. Um, We did see, and this was interesting, several statements recently either by top Saudi officials or by top Biden administration officials, tying the Saudi issue to the Palestinian issue. And this goes against everything that we're hearing from the Netanyahu government. When I talk to people in the Netanyahu government, they're telling me the Saudis don't care at all about the Palestinians. It's all about the American weapons and the nuclear file. And if that gets solved, we'll have peace with Saudi Arabia. Okay, that's definitely an interesting argument. But when you hear the Saudi foreign minister last week, and even... Um, the crown prince himself, they sound a little different. And we did hear Secretary of State Antony Blinken mention the connection between the Palestinian issue and Saudi normalization at his speech 
with the APEC event last week in Washington. And it later appeared in a joint press statement by Blinken and the foreign ministers of all the Gulf countries, basically saying there has to be a resolution of the Palestinian issue as well. I don't think the Saudis are going to demand a two-state solution and an evacuation of 100,000 settlers as a demand for normalization. But I think they will want to see some progress in that general direction, which then raises the question of Netanyahu's government and the far-right elements within it. Can they live with that? Yeah, I'm not an expert on scrutinizing diplomatic language like you are, but you reported that the Saudi foreign minister stressed any potential benefits from normalization would be limited without a two-state solution. Limited benefits is not saying it's not possible. He's just saying, oh, it won't be as great as it might potentially be. So he's not ruling it out. Or he's saying there won't be an embassy and a full peace agreement, but we could take some steps that will be considered normalization steps. There was talk about Israeli flights going to Saudi Arabia right now for the Hajj, which is happening, I think, later this week. That's probably not happening unless something's going to happen tomorrow um, or, you know, 48 hours from the time we're recording this conversation. Um, but then it will be much more symbolic because the vast majority of Muslim Israelis who are going this year to the Hajj in Mecca have already purchased tickets via Jordanian Airlines or taking a bus from Jordan. So if tomorrow evening a flight will be announced, how many people will board it? Um, and this was something that was being discussed for several weeks. It's a real option for this year. And, you know, certain people in the Israeli system were telling me, just watch, it's 100% going to happen. Eventually it didn't. So I think this is a complicated issue. I think the potential is there. And there is definitely a real possibility that by the end of this year or early 2024, we will see it happen. And of course, it will be magnificent for President Biden. I was going to say that seems to be the motivation here. No matter how many reasons there are not to push for it and not to do it, it would be a diplomatic achievement. That would be a great trophy for him to be holding while he's campaigning for 2024. Especially against Donald Trump, because I think Trump will say that his biggest achievement in foreign policy, really, I think his only foreign policy achievement as president, was the Abraham Accords. And if Biden could trump that with a so Israeli-Saudi peace, it wouldn't hurt him. But I don't think the administration is willing to pay any price for that. And again, the, the, the issues both between Washington and Riyadh and between Riyadh and Israel still remain. And yet in the middle of all this, I can't help but mention U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, Biden's close ally friend. With all of this potentially about to happen, he's bailing out and leaving. He's going home in a month. Well, he said this is mostly for personal reasons. Um, his, his wife, who is a senior executive at CNN, remained in Washington for the entire time that he was uh, ambassador here. And it sounds like a pretty tough way to... To, <laughs> to, to run a marriage. To run a marriage, yeah. Not, you know, I mean, this is... So he said there's, there are personal reasons there. I have to say, when he was nominated to be the ambassador, this was in May 2021... It was after the Israeli election of that year. It seemed like Netanyahu was on the verge of losing power. And indeed, by the time he was confirmed by the Senate and sent here to Israel, it was already the government of change with Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Um, and I think he had a good experience working with that government. I think he also gets along very well with Netanyahu. I don't think there's any personal issues between the two of them. But this is not a fun Israeli government to work with, the current government. This is a far-right government ultra-religious government. Every day you wake up thinking, what are they going to do now? Ministers insult the United States administration. Crisis after crisis. Doesn't sound like a very fun job. Uh, on top of that, you know, my this is a, a personal question I ask myself, but 
you know, previous American ambassadors enjoyed the best piece of real estate in the, <laughs> in, in the Holy Land, except maybe for the Temple Mount. I don't know that, you know, the house that they had in Herzliya. Without the beachside view, it's just not it, worth it. The, uh, come on. I mean, <laughs> and driving, you know, spending half the time in Jerusalem, half the time in Tel Aviv sounds like a bit of a nightmare. So probably personal reasons, maybe also the, just the political reality. And I think the biggest question is, who are they going to appoint to replace him, if at all? Because one option that is being considered is to not appoint a full-time ambassador and have his deputy, Stephanie Hallett, who is a very uh, esteemed and appreciated career diplomat with a lot of experience in the Middle East, be the acting ambassador until after the 2024 election. Sounds like a good idea. We'll see. We'll see. Because nobody's going to be happy with whoever he would pick. <laughs> yeah, and the confirmation process would probably be quite a nightmare. Let me just close with a question about Ukraine. Remember, there's a war going on in Europe. We tend to forget it. It continues. Since Netanyahu came back, we can't forget the billboards of him shaking hands with Putin, you know, alongside the ones of shaking hands with Trump and saying that they're in a different league now. They're in a very oh, special very league special club. Yeah. Exactly. Um, since the return of Netanyahu, have you seen any significant change in how Israel approaches the conflict in Ukraine? Any significant shifting towards a pro-Russia leaning? Uh, you reported on a statement about the explosion at the dam in southern uh, Ukraine that uh, Israel didn't mention Russia by name in, uh, in condemning what happened. Any, any change or observations of what's going on there? The Ukrainians, and to some degree also the Americans, have been unhappy with Israel on Ukraine from the beginning. They did not like what Bennett was doing with this weird attempt to mediate between P- Putin and Zelensky, which failed. Shocker. Yeah, they didn't think Yair Lapid brought much of a change except for rhetoric, which, I mean, he was only prime minister for half a year, so that's by itself maybe not enough time to do anything. And they don't seem to see a big change since Netanyahu has returned to power. Uh, the previous government agreed to give Ukraine a, an early warning system um, that has no military dimension to it. It's just like what we have in the area of Israel where I live on the border with Gaza. That, you know, it's, it's a better warning system to announce incoming rockets. Um, it has not been actually shipped yet to Ukraine, but I think there has been some bureaucratic... Uh, progress under the current government that has made the process of installing this system in Ukraine a bit faster than the early expectation and there is some appreciation of that but the big Ukrainian demands from Israel have not been answered yet and there is still a sense of disappointment even on the smaller issues that the more you know rhetoric diplomacy side of things Um, Israel hosted recently some uh, Russian delegation for diplomatic consultations that got the Ukrainians riled up. Um, the statements that Israel puts out still omit the word Russia more often than uh, they include it, and the Ukrainians don't appreciate that. Uh, there is some bitterness there, definitely. Um, and I don't think much has changed since Netanyahu returned to power. And one argument that I have heard the Ukrainians saying is, At a time when you have all these confrontations with Washington and you're fighting over Iran and over settlements and over this and over that, Ukraine is actually the one issue where Netanyahu could give something to the Biden administration without losing any support within his far-right ultra-religious coalition. This is not going to get Ben Gvir or Smotrich or the ultra-Orthodox to be angry if he decides to have a little more pro-Ukrainian line. 
And so that's, you know, for the Ukrainians, something they don't understand what's keeping him back from doing it. Well, the big reasoning before was our northern border, that he was worried about security, worried about Russian control of that uh, Yeah, of that the, space. The, the Russian presence in Syria has remained the number one reason that Israel has taken a more cautious approach. And again, there are some criticisms of that even within the Israeli system because the Russians have uh, moved some of their assets um, and resources from Syria to Ukraine. Um, and I think the perception today is that there is less of a risk posed from that. But the reasons for cautious mostly remain anchored in that argument. Amir Tibon, don't be a stranger. Come back to the podcast. I hope we'll be hearing from you soon uh, to report on the full diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The next episode, Alison, we will uh, record on the plane from Tel Aviv <laughs> to Jeddah for the signing ceremony. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to Amir Tibon, my guest, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Thank you.